0: From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: I'm very much connected with the individuals in the front line, and they feel like they're in war, and they feel as though they have not been protected the way they should have
0: been. That's Dr. Robert Pearl on the COVID-19 crisis. Our special series continues this week with a conversation with one of the country's most influential physician leaders. But first, a word from our sponsors. Over the past several years, Biome has partnered with some of the country's leading cardiovascular teams to power their continuous learning and drive high quality healthcare delivery. This partnership allows Biome to share new data and insights on performance and develop new intelligence all in a matter of weeks. Visit biome.io solutions to learn about how the biome solution powered by artificial and augmented intelligence can improve your cardiovascular service lines performance today. Could workflow inefficiencies be preventing you from providing better care? MIDMARK is focused on developing solutions that help you uncover these inefficiencies, optimize workflow, and improve the patient experience. The MIDMARK Real-Time Locating System, or RTLS, can reduce wait times by moving patients efficiently through their visits, increase patient throughput by utilizing space effectively, and automatically collect data to give you additional insights on further workflow improvements. Contact Midmark today to see how they're transforming the way healthcare is delivered. For more information, visit midmarkrtls.com. Healthcare communication is broken, and SR Health by Solution Reach gives you the most practical solutions to fix it. Stay connected to patients throughout their care journey, improve outcomes, and increase operational efficiency. From diagnosis-based education to appointment-related communications, you need flexibility, reliability, and total control to create the best patient and provider experience. Find out how you can get just that with SR Health at srhealth.com. At this point, we've all become accustomed to seeing conferences and events either canceled or postponed by the COVID-19 crisis. In fact, here at MGMA, We've kept learning a priority and shifted April's operations conference from a face-to-face event to a fully virtual experience. Joining us to discuss the crisis is Dr. Robert Pearl, who will open the online conference April 16th with a keynote session titled, The Future of American Healthcare, Four Pillars for Transformation. Dr. Pearl, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: It's my pleasure. It's great to be on the show.
0: You're the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. This was the nation's largest medical group under your guidance there. So give us an idea what the size and scope of the group was uh, when you were in charge there.
1: So for listeners who may not understand, Kaiser Permanente is two separate organizations. There's the Kaiser side, which is the insurance and the running of the actual physical hospitals, the nursing staff and the cleaning staff. And then there's the Permanente side, which is the care delivery side, and that was the half of Kaiser Permanente for which I was accountable. In that role, I led 10,000 physicians, about 40,000 staff, and cared for over 5 million Kaiser Permanente members, both on the West and East Coast.
0: Yeah. It, I mean, that is just a massive organization, and it gives some real idea about the the breadth of of how many uh, staffers and how many patients can be touched uh, by one organization. So give us an idea then in running such an organization, how has that prepared you to kind of think about um, what's going on now in in America's healthcare system? Because I know that's something that you talk to groups around the country about and want to get some thoughts on that.
1: I tell people I've had the privilege of having three careers. My first career was a practicing surgeon. I specialized in fixing children born with cleft lip and cleft palate, although I did many other reconstructive aspects of uh, plastic surgery. I then, as you noted, had the opportunity to be the CEO of the nation's largest medical group. As a physician, you care for maybe 10 or 20,000 different individuals across your career. And as I mentioned, as the CEO, I was able to touch the lives and improve the health of 10 million uh, individuals. In my current third career, my goal is to change the entire American healthcare system because I believe that uh, it is not providing the best care possible. I wrote the Washington Post bestseller, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare, why Why We're Usually Wrong. It's a Washington Post bestseller. All the profits, by the way, go to Doctors Without Borders. And it focuses on the challenges across the United States. We are last in life expectancy, uh, last in childhood mortality. We're the only nation amongst the industrialized nations to actually see maternal mortality have gone up over the past decade. We lag, based upon the Commonwealth Fund, in every aspect of healthcare outcomes as a nation, except how much we spend, where we lap everyone else, spending $11,000 per patient, second highest nation, Switzerland, 8,500, Germany, 6,500. Everyone else is half of what we spend with better outcomes. And what I see is despite every piece of objective data, What we see is that Americans still believe we have the best system without any evidence that's there. And that's the biggest thing that I learned. The American healthcare system is like a 19th century cottage industry. It's fragmented. Physicians scattered across the community, hospitals scattered across communities and often redundant. It's paid on a piecemeal basis. We call it fee-for-service. You get paid for the volume, not the value. The more you do, the more you make, whether it helps patients at all, or even if it hurts them, often you get paid twice. The technology is left over from the last century. I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business as well as the Stanford Medical School. But the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I always start my first class by asking the students, how do doctors send the most vital medical information from one office to another? The first class, what do they know? I explain it's the fax machine. And you know what they say? What's a fax machine? (laughs) This is an 1843 device that we're still using. You have to actually print something out of your computer, put it into the fax. The receiving person has to then enter into the computer. They can't believe that that is how care is provided. And I don't think most of your listeners even realize how far behind we are. And the last piece is that of leadership and the entire healthcare system in this nation doesn't have the kind of leadership structure that would be required to make the advances. And I know we're gonna come to talking about the coronavirus, current pandemic, COVID-19, and one of the challenges you see there is the complete lack of leadership, coordination, collaboration, cooperation that would be essential for us as a country to overcome this massive viral threat.
0: Yeah. And you're making a lot of great points there. And I want to put it in context. As you mentioned, we're, we're in the midst of this pandemic. It's for our listeners, it's March 23rd as we're talking. And Robert, you have, as you were telling me offline, you have loved ones who are on the front line. You have dedicated your life to healthcare you've got a lot of former colleagues who are out there battling it on the front line as well. Talk about that for a minute because you were talking about having to, you know, practice some social distancing, some self-isolation just maybe with even within your own family there. How is that affecting you and how's that working for you there?
1: So for listeners, let me provide two sets of answers. The first is relative to the actual individuals providing the care, and they are doing a remarkable job under some of the most difficult circumstances that exist. We have in existence protective gear. Hospitals don't have it. They didn't supply up. They didn't manufacture it. The supply chain was broken. They are facing a virus that can take their life. There have already been physicians who have lost their life, and nurses and respiratory therapists because of failures of the American healthcare system. And I'd love to come back to that and talk about it in more detail about what could happen in the future. But for listeners, let me focus on helping them understand how we got to where we are today, which to me is a failure of not only the American healthcare system, but the entire American political system. When a virus comes along, it is crucial that we actually prevent infection. A virus is a very simple organism. It's a, what we call a lipid, of fats, a fats shell, or a shell made of fats with a few pieces of RNA, which is similar to the DNA that as humans we have, but it's even less complex. Small amount of RNA. The virus gets into the body, and if it doesn't meet resistance, it finds a way to penetrate to the cells, and the cells then start replicating the virus, believing that it's important for the survival of the organism, not meaning the person, not recognizing that it actually threatens their life. The way you avoid viral infections is vaccination. Measles is a great example, a very, very highly communicated disease that we basically had eradicated and would have eradicated, people were still getting the vaccinations for it. That's how you prevent it. The flu is a bit more complex because the flu virus changes each year a little bit. But similarly, if all Americans received the vaccine, this would be a minor problem. And by the way, for listeners who may not realize it, in a typical year, 40,000 people die from the flu, not because of the flu virus, but because they did not get the protection that they otherwise could have gotten. It takes about a year to develop a, a an effective but safe virus, uh, vaccine. It's not going to happen in a week or two. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Contagion. I saw it the other night. It's fascinating how mm-hmm. accurate it is to the current situation. That was the solution of the movie. It's not going to happen in practice. The second way, and Hong Kong's doing it, Singapore's doing it, is by being able to find the infection at the earliest time period, we call it containment. So you find the individual and maybe their 20 contacts, and then you quarantine that group until after two weeks you know that they've not come down with the disease. That is the way you can take care of a viral problem when you don't have a vaccine. We missed that opportunity. We missed it because we underestimated The severity, we missed it because uh, we didn't have the testing required. The initial testing produced by the CDC was flawed. We didn't allow private companies to do it. We missed that window. You know, I looked this morning in preparation for this conversation. It said that there's 37,000 known cases in the United States. Data says there's five to 10 times more than that. There's somewhere between 150 and 300,000 people with the virus, and they have 20 contacts each. We can't possibly find all those people and contain it. And then you are where we are right now. All you can do is slow down the progress. We don't do social distancing in order to prevent infection. We do it to prevent the speed of transmission of infection, recognizing that people will ultimately get this virus. But what we don't want to do is see a spike. The hospitals in New York, the ones in Washington state, probably soon some of the ones in California, are going to get overwhelmed with more patients than they have beds, doctors, nurses, and ventilators. This is the reality that's looking ahead of us. And why we socially isolate, actually socially distance, not isolate, but distance from people is to slow that rate of progression. If we can do that, we can save many, many lives. If we fail to do that, we will overwhelm our facilities and we'll be making very difficult decisions, ones that the physicians in Italy are having to do today, which is between two patients, both of whose lives could be saved, but there's only one ventilator to treat them.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you for those thoughts. That's a a powerful message, and you're really looking at it from that big picture macro level. I wanted to take it on a personal level. You still speak with many in the medical community, people who are on, on the front line, former colleagues or other people out there. What have been your interactions with them? What are they telling you? Because offline, you were telling me, I've never been through a wartime situation. That's how you equated COVID-19. So tell us about that.
1: So you're absolutely right. I speak with many physicians. I have uh, a monthly musing I send out uh, I have Forbes articles, over 5 million people have read the material. I get lots of emails, lots of communications. I've c- I recently consulted to a variety of hospitals and medical groups about opportunities. I'm very much connected with the individuals in the front line and they feel like they're in war. And they feel as though they have not been protected the way they should have been. I was reading this morning about an article from California. And I know California well, having been CEO there. The hospitals in San Francisco right now do not have the protective gear required to take care of the doctors and the nurses appropriately. They do not have the capacity to take care of the number of people who are coming to them with severe infection requiring hospitalization and critical care. The University of California, Davis, that's located maybe an hour drive away along the same, what's called, Highway uh, Interstate 80, is still doing cosmetic surgery. Hmm. Still using those same masks that could protect the doctors and the nurses to help people desiring a cosmetic improvement. It is a broken system, and the people who feel as though they're taking the brunt of it are the people who have dedicated their life to taking care of patients, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, and they feel like they are under siege. And I think as a nation, we need to do a better job of supporting them.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you were a leading voice in in the healthcare industry, dealt with SARS, Ebola, other outbreaks. What has been the biggest difference then with COVID-19? Why is this so different?
1: Two reasons this has been so different. One is the virus, and number two is the response. So, in terms of the virus, let me again back up for some of your listeners. There are seven known coronaviruses, four of which cause the common cold, one of which is SARS, one of which is MERS, and now COVID 19 is the seventh of the viruses. And they all behave slightly differently. The advantages we had in SARS and MERS. Is that they demonstrated symptoms, particularly fever, before the patient became able to, communi- to give the virus to communicate the virus to another individual. You may remember people who were flying during that time period, but they would have temperature sensors in, ho- in the airports, and anyone coming in from another country would have their temperature measured, and anyone who had a fever would obviously get immediately quarantine. This is the containment approach that I described before, the one that's happening in Hong Kong and Singapore, very effectively. This disease takes longer to develop symptoms. People think on average it's five or six days. And during that time period with this particular virus, people can, can communicate, it can infect other individuals with the virus. And so to that extent, it's much harder to contain because it's so hard to screen, requires a lot more effort, and as the numbers grow larger, exceeds the ability of public health officials to do so. But the second part is that our nation didn't do what it should have done. We learned about this virus January 1st. We knew it was coming. The first case in the United States happened near the end of January. Six weeks later, March 12th, our nation had done a total of 10,000 tests. The problem with this virus is that the symptoms are exactly the same as the flu, very similar to the common cold. You have to test for it. South Korea was doing more tests every day than the United States did in total between our first case and six weeks later, March the 12th. Even today, the number of tests available are relatively small. Some of the things that people have to do to minimize the spread of this disease are, I'll call them general. Everyone should socially distance. Everyone should wash their hands frequently with soap for 20 seconds, particularly after they potentially have come in contact with someone with the virus. But the people who really need to be doing a lot more are all of us if we get sick. And that is a self-imposed quarantine. And how do you know how long you should quarantine yourself for? Let's say you saw met someone who tells you that they came down with the virus. Are you going to put yourself in quarantine for 14 days? No. What you do is you go to a drive-through type testing site if they all existed. You do a quick, easy swab inside your mouth. If we had enough swabs, they run the test in a relatively short amount of time. If we had enough testing, and now you know what you have. If you're positive, you better keep yourself away from your loved ones because you will give this to them at the dining room table, they'll give it to them in the television room. You need to self-quarantine to protect them. But you can't be constantly self-quarantining. You've gotta be able to live your life, run your family, do the things that are necessary, and that's where the testing is essential, and we dropped the ball. We had the test that did not work coming out of the CDC. We prevented universities and private labs from developing the test. We could have what South Korea had, but we made a decision not to. And that is how this entire process has gotten out of control to a point now that all we can try to do is to slow down the spread. The chances of being able to pull the genie back in the bottle, that time has long disappeared.
0: Mm-hmm. You have already written in outlets on the myths that you've identified involving COVID 19. What are the most important ones? that are important to the healthcare community. Our listeners here are primarily um, administrators, physicians, nurses, anyone who works in a medical practice group or health systems, that's our audience. And so what are some myths that, that might even surprise them or help them educate uh, their patients as they come in contact with them or communicate with them?
1: One of the most important myths is that I'll say relatively young people shouldn't worry very much about this virus. I just read a study today of college students, a third of them are still going to parties as though nothing were different. The consequence is that they will get sick. And getting sick, by the way, this is not a minor problem. Uh, when the human body sees a virus that it has never come in contact with, it has a pretty significant reaction often. What they may be surprised to learn is that something like a third of the people in the United States who are hospitalized today are ones who are under the age of 50. That is not understood by very many people. So the biggest myth is that somehow because individuals have better immunity as a result of being younger and not having any chronic disease, that they don't need to take the same precaution. They do need to take it, some of which for their own health and a lot of which for everyone else's health. They come home from college, they give it to a grandparent, they're likely to be responsible for that person becoming ill and potentially uh, dying. The second part is what I mentioned about testing, that you don't need to be tested if you're not very sick. You do need to be tested because the degree of precaution that you take is dependent upon whether you have COVID-19 or whether you have a different infection. Not that if you have a different infection, you still shouldn't use reasonable uh, hygiene, making sure you wash your hands, not coughing on anyone, but the degree of risk is significantly lower with a different coronavirus, the common cold, than it is with COVID nineteen. I think the third part, and the one that really concerns me the most, is this still this notion that oh my gosh, it just take a couple more weeks and everything is going to be under control. I'm amazed every morning when I read about people who look at the escalating number of individuals. Who have died or have the disease, and they're surprised that it's gotten higher. A virus of this type grows exponentially. The people who are dying this week got sick a month ago. We didn't social distance till even, what, 10 days ago, 14 days ago? Yep. This virus doubles every three days. Two weeks from today, The number of deaths will be 16 times higher. It will double four times at least across that time period. If it turns out that we actually didn't distance for another three days, it'll be six, it'll be sixty-four times higher. I'm sorry, it'll be thirty-two times higher. If it was a whole week, it'll be sixty-four times higher. We're talking about massive numbers. One of the interesting analogies is to think about a a beautiful pond in your backyard. And on it are some lilies, these little floating kind of vegetations. And let's assume that every day, each plant creates a new plant. And let's assume that it's going to be 50 days between the first lily plant replicating and the entire pond being covered. I like to ask people, how much of the pond will be covered on day 46? 46. This is four days away from the pond being fully covered, and the answer is only 6%. In fact, the day before, the 49th day, half of the pond will still not be covered. Our minds don't have the ability intuitively to understand exponential growth. We think about either arithmetic growth, or we think maybe about geometric growth, but exponential growth we're not able to do and i think that people have underestimated how long this is going to take and more importantly when the spikes happen how bad they're going to be they're not going to be twice as bad or three times as bad they're going to be a hundred times worse or even more simply because that's the nature of exponential growth it's biology and it's mathematics it's not opinion nor pessimism
0: Yeah. Let's take a step back then, because as you mentioned earlier, your work now is is in examining the healthcare system. You worked as a physician, you ran the largest group in the country, and now you've taken time to, you know, research and, and look at where the pain points are, where the gaps are, and what needs to be improved. So, Talk about that and throughout your research of what you see as the future of healthcare, what can we do to improve things? So we're not in the situation where we are right now.
1: Increasingly, as I talk with physicians, I'm trying to connect what's happening with COVID-19 with what's happening in the rest of the country, because I think they was seeing the same, maybe not exponential growth, but the same ultimate endpoint where things change very rapidly. I mentioned earlier, I teach the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and one of the areas of greatest interest to me is disruption. Things that change slowly, yellow cab not seeing Uber and Lyft coming along, or things that uh, change slowly, uh, such as Kodak seeing the introduction of the filmless camera and not recognizing how it will take over the photographic world, or Borders not recognizing Amazon. What happens there is you see a long introductory curve and then a rapid increase, the same kind of exponential change, even though, again, the, the driver of that is somewhat different than an infectious. Uh, virus. And so the end point that we have to get to is very clear. We need care where physicians and hospitals work together as one, integration of care. Because when care is integrated and people work together, they can come up with better solutions, particularly when to the second point. The second pillar, this roadmap to the future, care is paid on a capitated basis, paid in advance. I mean, you start to look at some of the statistics. The Mayo Clinic did a study. 30% of the care we provide is unnecessary, adds no value. In fact, very likely harms patients. The most commonly done operation orthopedics which is a arthroscopy with meniscectomy, has been shown by studies both in Canada and more recently published in JAMA, to add no value, and yet we still do it. A third of the antibiotics we prescribe add no value and actually probably make things worse by increasing the likelihood the bacteria will be resistant to, a- to future antibiotics. The third level to me is technology. We've got to find ways to be able to use the technology that is available in opportunities to improve the care of patients. It's actually one of the few things that makes me optimistic about the current COVID epidemic. In Kaiser Permanente, when I was the CEO, we were the leader in the nation at doing video visits, telehealth. We did Um, about 10,000 a month in the typical location. They're now doing 5,000 a day for patients who are having symptoms consistent with coronavirus. I think that's going to be a game changer. I think when it's all done, patients are going to demand to continue to get the care that they were able, the convenience, the access through telehealth that otherwise they would have had to come to the physician's office, combined with the drive-through testing that they could do at their convenience without having to be exposed to other patients who might be sick. And then finally, the leadership structure. We had 10,000 physicians I mentioned earlier, 2,000, one in every five, went through a rigorous leadership training program, learning how to create teams to work through teams. When you start doing those things, you come up with new and better ideas. A good example to me is what we called P consult, which was a phone consult that became a V consult, a video consult. Patient comes in with a medical problem to see primary care. The primary care physician wants a specialty consult. What happens in medicine today? A consult is sent sometimes in the mail, sometimes by a a, a receptionist calling a specialist office, sometimes the patient has to call. Several days later, the patient finally gets seen. There's no collaboration, no coordination. Immediately, for over half of the problems, the ones that could be addressed through a conversation and then ultimately a video visit with the doctor and both with the specialist, the primary care, and the patient, over 60% of the time, we were able to resolve the problem
0: there and then. Mm -hmm. One thing you mentioned was technology. You talked about, some of the opportunities uh, that are already taking place. Last week, CMS made policy changes regarding telehealth and telemedicine. What are the biggest challenges you see then in making that work, making it a reality? I
1: mentioned earlier that my first book was called Mistreated, or we think we're getting good Healthcare while we're usually wrong. A second book that's due with the publisher by July 1st is going to be about the physician culture. And in that book, I speak about how the problems we face are a combination of both the systemic issues, the insurance company preauthorization, the clunky electronic health record, all of the regulatory restrictions. We can go and list all of the systemic problems, but we also need to face the cultural ones, the ways we as physicians and caregivers, and I often talk about physicians, by the way. I want to make sure all the nurses who are listening in understand how much I appreciate the work you do every day. But if the physicians who I think are the most resistant to change don't change, the system's not going to change. And that's why I focus somewhere on my comments about the physician. And the physician culture is one that does not support some of these pieces. A good example, as you said, is video. Doctors like when patients come to their office. That's the way they've always given care. They like the systems where patients may have to wait for care, but seeing them is so important, they can't stand things like urgent care clinics and drive-through clinics and telehealth kind of solutions. They just go against the grain of how doctors were trained and what they believe, and occasionally there are problems, but often we're missing tremendous opportunities. There are legal constraints, and as you noted the fact that uh, CMS recently said it's okay to make some violations in some very traditional rules to be able to use the kind of communication devices, video technology that we all carry in our pockets on our smartphones. And there are other issues with insurance companies paying and the government paying. There's a lot of true systemic issues, but I think it's as much about the individuals. And I haven't even yet gotten into all the other people in healthcare. I mean, I could go on all day about the drug companies and the egregious prices they charge. I could speak a lot about the hospitals that have consolidated in order to gain market control and raise price. And rather than trying to find ways to create centers of excellence, continually look for opportunities to push out more and more services, focusing on the volume rather than the value that sits there. I could talk about the Congress, that despite all the language they've used and spoken about relative to making some of the advances, they're still often beholden to the lobbyists and to the individuals making political contributions. I'll go back to where we started. We have an entire broken system of healthcare. If we wait to do the things that we know we should and could do, we're gonna face the same kind of crisis in healthcare that we currently are facing in response to this virus.
0: Robert, these have been powerful thoughts that you've shared with us today and I just appreciate you joining us and sharing these with our audience as well.
1: It's My pleasure, thank you so much for having me.
0: That's gonna do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Biome, Midmark, and SR Health by Solution Reach for sponsoring this week's show. Also, thanks to our guest, Dr. Robert Pearl. You can hear his opening session at MGMA 20, the operations conference online, April 16th and 17th. For more information or to register, visit mgma.com/toc to sign up for Dr. Pearl's monthly newsletter, learn more about his book or browse his latest content. Visit robertpearlmd.com. Keep an eye out for more in this series as we talk with other healthcare professionals guiding their practices through these difficult times. To keep up with the latest, be sure to visit mgma.com slash COVID. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.